Take your Bibles and turn to me the book of James, chapter 3. James, or excuse me, chapter 4. We're moving on to chapter 4 of the book of James. Two weeks left in this series. We're going to cover James 4, 1 through 12 today, and then we're going to look at James 5 next week. And I'm really um, excited about finishing out this series. As I said earlier, it's been an impactful series for me. It's been something that um, has challenged me personally and hope it's been challenging to you. If you missed any of these uh, messages, you can go online and find them. Um, you can go to um, our website and it'll give you a link to find them all. Or maybe you're one of those people that listens in the car. There is a podcast of our of the sermons that are is available in all everywhere you get podcasts if you do that on um, Apple Music or anywhere else, you can just search First Baptist Goodlettsville and it'll, it'll bring it up and you can listen to it that way. And so I'm excited about the next couple of weeks as we finish this out. Let me also mention to you that we have changed some of the things that we've done with, in regard to our bulletin, or actually we've changed a lot of what we've done in our bulletin, our order of service. And so as you come in in this service um, weekly, um, we have these available for you. There's nothing on there about an order of service because we kind of, um, we have a general idea of order of service, but there are weeks that that changes in the middle of it. Um, there'll be some announcements and stuff on the back, but it's also a great place if you don't have a journal already to take notes for the sermon. Um, here's what I know. All the studies tell me that if you write down something from the sermon that God impresses on your heart, you are much more likely to remember it than you don't. All right. If you don't, you don't remember it. It won't take it with you. And the purpose of God's word, the purpose of, of me speaking each week is not just to give you information for a day, but that we can learn what God would have us to do to change our lives on a daily basis. And so make sure you, you take something like that or take notes somewhere. We'd love for you to do that. James chapter 4. We're continuing this message series, and I want to start today by asking you to figure out what four things have in common. So I'm going to give you a list of four things, and I want you to figure out, I'm going to let you talk about it with people around you, what do these four things have in common, all right? So here are your four things. A golden stool, a flagpole, a pig, and a severed, shriveled ear. All right, I see you all got answers ready to go. All right, so I'll give you that list again. A golden stool, a flagpole, a pig, and a severed, shriveled ear. All right, tell somebody around you. Take a wild guess what you think that has to do with anything. There's literally no conversation going on. All right, anybody got a guess? We had somebody guess it right, right off the bat in the first service, and he's like eight, all right? Alex Castro got it right off the bat, all right? He yelled it out, and I was like, you ruined the whole thing, because I don't have anybody else to guess anything. All four of those things were catalysts that started wars. A golden stool... There was an ancient Egyptian golden stool that when the British Empire started to take over parts of Africa, one of their leaders went in and didn't know it was a sacred golden stool. And he sat on the stool and the entire village ransacked the British soldiers' places and it started a war because he sat on a stool. Flagpole. Uh, the British seem to always be starting these. The British went down to New Zealand. They had a place that they liked to go hang out with some guys. And they thought because they had taken over this little town partying that they could raise the, the British flag in that area. So they got a flagpole. They raised the British flag. The, the Aboriginal peoples there, the people that were from there, uh, came and chopped the flagpole down. They resurrected it again, put it up, raised the flag. They chopped it down. They raised it again. They chopped it down. Parliament said they can't chop our flagpole down anymore or conflict's going to happen. So they raised the flag and 
the uh, originals came in and um, uh, wiped out all the British that were there, killed them all because of a flagpole. All right. A pig down. This is before the Civil War. A, uh, the Americans and the British had an island that half of it was American, half of it was British. The pig wandered into the American side, started eating some of the potatoes of the Americans. The Americans shot him. And uh, the British were mad about their pig getting shot, and so they almost started uh, another British-American American Revolution-like war over a pig uh, in an island. And then the last, what was the last one I told you? Oh, yeah, the, 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 the most beautiful of them all, a severed, shriveled ear. A guy got his ear cut off by the Spanish. Seven years later, he showed it to the people in Parliament in Britain. Seven years later. Can you imagine how good a severed ear looks seven years later? Not one that had been in a museum somewhere. He'd just been carrying it around as a reminder. The British were ready to go to war and they attacked Spain because of his severed, shriveled ear. Aren't you glad in your life you never have a conflict start from something ridiculous? Where something happens and then you, you get really upset and the conflict happens and years down the road you're like, I don't even remember what we're mad about. And then you look back and you go, oh. Probably not worth the last five years of my life, right? Conflicts are inevitable. They happen all around us. At home, at work, at school, at play, with friends, with acquaintances, with family. And some conflicts have legitimate reasons. There are legitimate wrongs. There are legitimate sins. There are legitimate harm done upon us. But most conflict in our life does not come from legitimate reasons. And as James continues his book, and in his book, he's been described to us what real faith looks like, what real wisdom looks like, what real speech ought to look like, what real going through temptation ought to look like, what it should look like when we are doing it as God calls us to, to suffer trials. And in the midst of it all, he's going to remind us what it means to follow Christ. And as he does that, he's going to come to this point to say, and this is what conflict should look like in your life. And the reality is, he's going to say, if we live our lives according to God's plan, conflict will be minimal. In James chapter 4, he's going to give us the reason for conflict and the solution for it. So here's what I want you to do today, all right? Because we all have conflicts in our lives. We all have something going on. Many of us have multiple conflicts happening in our lives. But I want you today, just in this moment, to think of one conflict in your life right now. One. One disagreement. One family member. One friend at school. One business associate. One church member, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's your kids, maybe it's your parents. But I want you to think of one conflict in your life right now. And then as we walk through this passage in James, I want you to think about that conflict and how what James teaches applies to it. James chapter 4, starting in verse 1. So what is the source of wars and fights among you? He starts out just by saying, hey, listen, what's causing all the problems in our lives? Now, we don't know what the specific issues were in the churches and to the people to whom James is writing. We, we think, as we said the first week, that James is a book of sermons that he had probably preached in the church in Jerusalem that he then dispersed to Jews all over the place. And so we don't know what the conflict might be. But the point is they had conflict. They had issues. They had problems. And he says the source of the wars, the source of the fights among you, he says, Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? 
You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You don't ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely? So when you're thinking about that conflict, when you're thinking about that thing in your life, that relationship or that discussion or that disagreement, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to think. That when you're looking for the source of conflict, always look within. Now the problem is, that is not the normal reaction for us in conflict. Generally when we're in conflict with somebody, generally when we're in disagreement with somebody, where do we look for the reason for that? Somebody else outside of us. Well, if they hadn't, well, if she wouldn't have, if they hadn't said, well, I would forgive if they, I would move past it if they were willing. And we think everything that's happening and all the conflict that is there is external. Now, there may be internal, there may be moments when we look and say, well, maybe I have a small part in the whole thing, but it's like 2%. Most of the time we say, man, it's their fault. It's because of them. If they hadn't. And the Bible is consistent. That whenever we in conflict, whenever we have issues in our lives, the first place that we ought to look is inward into ourselves. James makes that point right here from the very beginning. He says it's about the passions that are within you, the desires that are within you. It's what's inside your heart. Jesus would make this claim again and again and again. It's not what goes into the man that makes him unclean. It is what comes out of his mouth because what comes out of his mouth comes from the depths of his heart. It's where his heart is. Jesus would remind us that most of the time the external problems we have come from internal conditions in our lives. It comes from within. James will tell us that our hearts determine our actions. Our hearts determine our speech. Our hearts determine the direction of our lives. And what is happening here is James is saying if we're not careful, the desires of our heart, the things that we want in our lives, the things that we're searching for in our lives, they take hold in our relationships with other people and with the world at large. And it causes conflict because we're not getting what we want. He uses the language of jealousy, of coveting, of passions. In fact, when he uses the word passion here, and we use the word passionately devoted around here, but this is a different kind of passion. The passion word here used is the word that we we get our word hedonism from, which means you just do whatever you can to fulfill yourself to take care of you. If you were here last week when he talked about wisdom, he said the differentiating mark between wisdom of the world and the wisdom from above is the wisdom of the world if self-centered, focused on me. And the wisdom from above is always outwardly looking. In our lives, we see the results of a heart that's been hardened towards God and towards others happen. And sometimes it feels like it's sudden, but it's been developing because it's been there from within. Suddenly someone files for divorce. Suddenly a teenager's grades drop. Suddenly a destructive habit rips apart a family. And we look at it and say, I don't even know where that came from. And the answer is, it came from their heart. 
I was looking at it this week and I read some information about the desires of our heart. And it focused back on four things that enter into our heart that can lead us away from the Lord and lead us toward conflict with others. And the book of James keeps talking about these desires and what it is. And it's always about something we don't have that we want. See, as adults, we like to think that we've grown up past that. Like, it's easy when a kid and you're in a store and they don't get what they want and they break down. It's easy to see that. And you're like, oh, I'm so glad that is not me. And yet we live our lives constantly in search of things we don't have. And when we don't get them, we take it out on others around us. I want to give you those four enemies of your heart that I just want you to guard against and the desires that come that lead to conflict with others. And the first one's going to seem a little counterintuitive, but I want you to follow me for a second. The first enemy of our heart, the first thing that can lead us into conflict and away from what the Lord would intend is guilt. And the idea with guilt is, and all of these are going to be that we owe something or something is owed to us. And this one is that I owe you something and I can't move past the fact that I've done something to you and I owe you. I'm guilty about it. Guilt's one of those words that we've turned a noun into a verb, you know, like um, Googling, like I Googled it yesterday. Well, Google was a noun, but we've turned it into a verb. Back uh, years ago, some of you won't even know what this is, we used to talk about, hey, can you go Xerox that for me, all right? Xerox is a company, a noun, but we turned it into a verb. Well, how many of you have ever been guilted into something, right? Guilt's a noun, but it drives us to action. And what happens is, intentionally or unintentionally, we make decisions that cause harm in other people's lives, and we feel bad about the harm that is there. Even some that we said, oh, we're okay, we understand the collateral damage, we'll be all right with it, we're not. And when the guilt begins to rise up within us, when a couple of weeks ago we talked about that our words, we can start a fire that destroys. And we're responsible for the fire, whether we intended to do it or not. We are responsible for the cause or or for the sin in our lives that causes trouble for other people. We're responsible for the reaction that happens, for what happens in the lives of others, whether we want to be or not. And we see that and we're guilty about it. The dad who walks away from a family and leaves them to fend for themselves, the consequences are there and he sees it whether either subliminally or realistically he understands it and he feels guilty for it and what happens when that guilt rises in our heart the desire for forgiveness the desire for things to be all right the desire to make it right means that we put a wall up in relationships we guard ourselves from relationships we make sure we don't put ourselves in a situation where we'll feel that bad again and we begin to push people away and as people begin to try to reach back out to us our first response is conflict just put Push them away, push them away, get them out of here, because I don't want to deal with it. The second one is not that I owe you something, it's anger. And anger comes from, you owe me. You did something to me. And where the first one is, what you desire is forgiveness. And the second one, in anger, you desire an apology. You want it to be made right. When someone does something to you, you let it burn inside of you. At the root of anger is the perception that something has been taken from you that you deserve and you want it back. The truth is, if you show me somebody that's angry in general, I'll show you somebody that has been hurt in their life. Because hurt people get angry. 
And they don't know where to direct it. And so they fire off anger. And a lot of times what happens is you don't even just stay angry at the person that took something from you. You end up using your anger on people that are near and dear to you that haven't done that to you at all. And you cause conflict by building walls of anger around you. And we live in a society society that thrives on anger. There's this whole thing out there, and there's a quote that says that we have a society that has given in to the perpetual outrage machine. And we have made it easier than it has ever been in history to get mad at people that we don't even know. The most popular form of television on news and sports these days, anybody know what it is? debate and not like let's have a real intellectual conversation about something i'm just going to yell at you for 30 minutes about whether lebron james is in the same class as michael jordan that's like half the programming on sports television today right i didn't ask if he was i'm not asking for your some of you are debating it with me right now i'm not asking that i'm just saying that's what people do they get mad at each other back and forth. Online, people will put something out there. And boy, I am mad at them. I, they should have never said that. I'm going to fire it off at them. We don't wait to listen for anything. We, don't, we're, we are definitely not slow to speak and slow to anger. We are quick trigger on that stuff. And what's crazy is some of those people will get on those shows and yell at each other and get everybody inflamed. And then they'll go off and have a good time that night hanging out together because they're friends in real life. It's TV. I remember this a few years ago. Some of you won't remember this, and that's okay because you're young and you'll, it just, it'll go over you. But some of you remember there was uh, several years ago. I think they're still around, but not nearly as they used to be. There was a Democratic strategist and a Republican strategist that were married and would go on debate shows. It was uh, James Carvel, and his, his wife was, I think, married something. But it, what's that, Mary Madeline? Was that her name? Okay. Um, and so they were... They were uh, they would go on these shows, Crossfire on CNN, and they would yell at each other for a while, and then they do interviews about how they're this happy couple doing great, and they love each other, and everybody's everybody on the show's mad at them, and they're like, I don't like that James Carville at all. He, how can you like him? If you're a Republican, how can you like him? She's like, I don't know. I'm married to him. I love him. We want to be angry. The problem is one of the most poisonous. Things in your life will be anger. The old quote is, being angry is like drinking poison and expecting somebody else to die. It just doesn't happen. And when anger's in our lives, conflict is all around us. The third one is greed. This isn't about what I owe you or you owe me. This is I owe me. I want what I want. I deserve it. I'm entitled to it. I need it. We live in a culture that tells us to go after it. You be you. You get what you want. You get what you need. You just do what is right for you and get all that you can and however you can. And don't worry about what anybody else says about it. These sort of people talk and worry a lot about material things and what they have and the reputations they have and the achievements that they have and aren't really listening to other things. They are not people that give cheerfully or share easily. They're poor losers. They're people that, you know, when this is in our heart, we do not want to lose at all. We are people that take it very personally when we lose. The, when, when you have this in your life, you're somebody that won't let anybody forget about what you've done for them. 
Like, don't forget what I did for you. Don't forget. They're reluctant to express gratitude. And they feel entitled. I mean, this can happen wherever you are. You're at work. And you've got the guy that says, listen, don't you remember last week I brought coffee for everybody in the office? I think I'm entitled to a little break today. This happens at church. Man, you know, I've taught Sunday school for 30 years. I think I'm entitled to have my opinion heard above everybody else's. Hey, you know how much I've given to this church over the last five years? You know how much I've given? I think I'm entitled to a little respect in that area. Greed is I owe me. I'm out for me. I want what I want and I'll get it. And then the last one, and it mentions it here in this passage, is jealousy. God owes me. Now here's the thing about jealousy, and I really believe this. I don't believe jealousy is really about the other person. You know what jealousy is, right? You know what envy is? When somebody's got something and you don't have it. I don't think the the issue is really the other person. It's not the other person's fault that they have what they have. It's that you don't have what they have. The issue is not them. It's you, right? So the issue is not your neighbor's brand new nice car. It's that you don't have one and can't afford one. The issue is not that your sister can fit into those jeans. It's that you can't. I don't want to hit too close to home. I'm just saying that's right. Like you, you, it's not that, man, it's not, man, I'm, I'm so mad at them for being in good shape. It's that I'm not. Let me just give you a tip on that. This is just personal experience, hypothetically, maybe. Um, if, you, if you want to feel good about yourself, don't take a picture standing next to a bunch of ninth grade basketball players that are on terrific shape and you've got your tie all askew and you're looking at yourself like, what am I doing? Be the coach that gets behind the shortest player on the team like Kevin did. And so we see, we don't see him at all. Not the coach that stands out there comparing himself to the ninth grade boys that are all in great shape, right? You're not jealous really because of them. It's because of what you don't have. And the idea is, God, I should. You turn into Adam and Eve in the garden. You remember Adam and Eve in the garden? Where did they place the blame? On God. God, it's this woman that you gave me. No, it was that serpent, God, that you put in the garden. It's your fault. Now, here's what I want you to see about this, all right? Because we kind of went on a tangent there for a minute to give you all these things. But what happens is when you look inside your heart and when you think about that conflict, remember that conflict, the one that you're thinking of, the one in your life right now, that conflict, which part of this in your life is there, is present, that is feeding, that is fueling, that is the reason for that conflict? Is it guilt over how you treated them, over what you've said to them? Is it the anger that you have because they owe you something? They didn't do something for you? They didn't help you in this way? Is it the greed of, but I deserve this, I need this? Or is it jealousy over what they have that you don't? Or maybe it's a combination of all four or two of them or three of them. But the point is that James is making, when conflict happens in your life, the first place to look is not the other person, it's not the group that you're in conflict with, it's not the... the, the wide range of possibilities that might be for them it's what's causing it inside of you and here's what i love about the book of james now he hadn't done this much and i think actually i just want to tell you i think actually what's happening in the last part of these verses is james is giving us the solution for all the issues he's already mentioned in the book of james 
how to go through temptation, how to go through trials, how to speak well, how to use your tongue wisely, how to show wisdom from above, not worldly wisdom. I think he's given us all those answers starting in verse 6. And he starts verse 6 in one of the greatest ways imaginable. So he's given us all this information. He's given us all this thing about what's happening inside our desires that we have that we don't want, this jealousy that's fighting, that's waging war within us, that it comes from within and that we as a result, are not just just people that are, are cold to God. He calls us that when we are living in that way, devoted to those things, selfishly going after those things, that we are enemies of God. There is no middle ground with God. He says you are enemies of God. And he says that you think you can be friends with the world. You think you can cozy up with the worldly thinking. You think you can cozy up to the way the world speaks. You think you can cozy up to the way the world handles temptation. He says you are wrong. And you are an enemy God when you do that. He says, and that's why the scripture says... The spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely. The idea is that we desire to live for God at the basest level of who we are. And when we give ourselves to the earthly wisdom, when we give ourselves to the earthly ways, we are not giving ourselves what we need and we end up unsatisfied. Then he starts verse 6. But he, that's the Lord, gives greater grace. I don't know about you, but man, that is good for me. As bad as I am, he gives greater grace. And it doesn't matter. Let me just tell you, this may have nothing to do with conflict in your life, but I want to let you know. It does not matter what you have done in your life. It does not matter how bad you have been, how far you have gone down the road towards the things that are not of God. It does not matter how guilty you feel or how shameful you feel about your past. He gives greater grace. That is good news. What's grace? Grace is us receiving what we do not deserve. And in this case, it means forgiveness of our sins and eternal life with him. Do you know what I am very happy about when it comes to God in my life is that he is unfair with me. Because if God gave me what I deserved, I would be destined for hell for all eternity. And I would not have come close to living 43 years on this planet. But he gives greater grace. What James wants us to realize is that you have the opportunity in your life to not live in a world of conflict, but to live in a world of peace. We talked about the concept of peace last week. It carries over into this chapter, and it means that we can be whole in the presence of God. And then he gives us how to do it. The first thing he tells us right here in this passage, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The idea here is that we can be humble before the Lord. Humility allows us to see our own sin. It allows us to understand where we are in the whole universe. It allows us to get quieter, not louder. It allows us to listen more and speak less. And most importantly, it allows us to submit to God, to the authorities that God has put on us, both spiritual and in this world. And in the submitting to the authorities of God, submitting to the authorities that God has placed over us, we allow ourselves to be teachable, to be moldable, and to learn. You will never grow in your spiritual walk with Jesus if you're not willing to learn. Never. 
when I was in seminary. And so seminary, as you know, is a master's level school for those that are wanting to go into ministry. And so it's a bunch of preacher boys in there. And we'd be in class with all the preacher boys and we'd be sitting around. And there were always, in every class that I was in, there were two or three preacher boys that wanted everybody to know how much they knew. And you'd sit in class, and I am sitting under some of the most well-respected teachers that have ever taught at the seminary level. I mean, some of the guys that I sat under at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary are giants in the faith. They are some of the most brilliant men you can imagine, but there would always be two or three people in the class that would ask questions every day, and they would raise their hand first thing, and you could tell from the moment the question began, they were just letting you know that they knew all the answers and probably knew more than the professor did. Well, Professor, I was just wondering if you had noticed in this particular passage that it says this. And what I think it really means is this. Have you ever thought about it that way? And you're just like, what are you doing, right? It's amazing how many times in my life I've come to God almost as if I've already got it figured out. Hey, God, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but let me just give you some, let me give you some information, man. Got some things I think you'd be really cool. If, you'd, if you could implement this this way, man, that'd be awesome. I think it'd go really well. And the first step to living a life dedicated to the Lord is humility. But then he, he follows immediately after that, just one right after another. Therefore, submit to God. Turn your life over to God. Listen to God. Put yourself under the lordship of the Lord. Give everything you have to Him. Yes, Lord, walking the ways of the truth, we wait for you. We submit to you. We will do what you call us to do. And then He tells us to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Because you're a follower of Jesus Christ, who who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You no longer have to sin. You no longer have to give in to temptation. You no longer have to do what the enemy wants you to do. You can stand firm. You can resist temptation. You can turn off the computer. You can walk away from that argument. You can decide not to send the email. You can decide not to eat that extra portion. You cannot, you don't have to do what the enemy says. Stand firm. Resist the devil. Be intentional about it. I am not going to put myself in that place of temptation. I am not going to put myself in that place. And if I do, I'm going to run. The scripture says that we are to flee temptation. We are to get as far away as we can as soon as we can. Then he says, draw near to God. And there's a promise with that. And he will draw near to you. Seek him with all your heart. Study his word. Pray to him. Go to him. Get yourself in a community of people around you that will encourage you and you walk with the Lord. We talked about those things last week. Put yourself under the authority that God has put in your life. Spiritual authority to teach and to help you to find your way in the world. Cleanse your hands, he tells us next. Sinners. And be purify your hearts. You're double-minded. He says you gotta, gotta not only seek God passionately, but you also have to pursue purity with all you are. You have to take sin seriously. He says, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. The idea there is that we are to treat the sin that God has put in our lives. I mean, that we have brought into our lives that God does not want. We are to treat it seriously and get rid of it. I think about the story of the woman at the caught in adultery in the New Testament. You remember that story, right? She's brought before Jesus. 
thrown into the mud. She's crying, I'm sure, because she knows what the law says about somebody. The scripture makes it evident that they caught her in the act. They bring her out in front of Jesus, so there's shame involved in that. She's probably not put together in that moment. She may not even be fully clothed. She's thrown at the feet of Jesus. She is weeping, probably. There is mud caked on her face. She is in the dirt. And Jesus says, all right, let those of you that are without sin throw the first stone. The scripture says from oldest to youngest, they dropped their stones and they began to walk away. And Jesus crouched down to her and he said to her, see that no one has condemned you, neither do I. But then he says this, and we often leave this off. He says, now go and sin no more. He is all about grace and forgiveness, but it is not upon us to presume upon that grace to go out and do whatever we want, whenever we want, with whoever we want. It is incumbent upon us to live our lives being serious about eliminating the sin that's in it. And then the last thing, and we're done, is to trust the Lord completely. He says it in chapter 4, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord. Put yourself under his leadership and he will exalt you. Trust him completely. Now he ends this passage in verses 11 and 12 saying that if that's who you are, if you're living by the wisdom from above, not the wisdom from below, if you're living according to what God has taught us to live, then this is what your life will look like. He's already told us several things that... um, (laughs) That we'll be doers of the word, not hearers only. That we'll make it through trials. That we'll make it through temptation. But here he speaks specifically about how we treat each other in the church. He says in verse 11, Don't criticize one another, brothers or sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge. Who is able to save and destroy but who are you to judge your neighbor? And the point he's making is, you are family. Treat each other as such. Do not disparage. Do not talk bad about. Do not criticize. Do not gossip. Do not spread innuendo. Do not have side conversations with people in the community. Do not put down your brothers and sisters in Christ. Growing up, I have one brother. Growing up, he was five and a half years older than me. I guess he's still five and a half years older than me. I guess that's the way it still works. But growing up, having a brother that's five and a half years older than you, always bigger than you, um, you learn that you get picked on quite a bit. I don't know if this... Anybody here have an older brother or sister? Any of you are the older brother or sister? I just need to pray for forgiveness about my feelings towards you right now. All right. Um, My brother... My brother messed with me all the time, okay? My granny used to have this phrase. She would tell us, if you don't straighten up, I'm going to pestle your head. I don't know what pestle means, but we didn't want it to happen. My brother thought he determined what pestle was, and he decided to pestle my chest. And so my brother, who was larger than me, would put one knee on one shoulder, the other knee on the other shoulder. He would take his finger, put the middle one in this position, and just do that to me on my chest and tell me to get up. I don't have any, I don't, I don't think I need to do counseling over that, but I still remember it, all right? 
we fought like that. I don't know, brothers, we, we just fought like that. We messed around like that all the time. I remember there was one time when I was getting a little bit older and I grabbed his legs and jumped back on him. He wasn't expecting it. And it sounded like I broke his back or something. He yelled and screamed and got all mad about his greatest day of my life. Like I remember that moment. Like we would do that back and forth with each other. Okay. Get on to each other, crack jokes at each other's expense. But if anybody ever came after my brother, it wasn't good. If anybody ever came after me, the first person to offend me was him. Because we're family. I've told this story. I told the first service. I've probably told this story to you before. I've been here almost 12 years. I'm out of stories, all right? That's the way it happens. But I remember when I was younger that I was, we, we just finished playing baseball at my friend Greg Prady's house and neighbor down the road. And we were walking back to our house and there was this pack of dogs from our neighborhood. And back then nobody had fences or they didn't put them on chains. You said neighborhood dogs, right? And these dogs all kind of looked and one of them barked at the front and they all started charging after us. Now I don't particularly remember what kind of dogs they were. They may have been, I don't know, dachshunds and Pomeranians. and But to me, I remember them as Dobermans and pit bulls, all right? And they start running full force after us. My brother looks at me and says, run, and we take off running. Now again, my I was like five or six. My brother was like 11 or 12 and he has left me in the dust. He is way out in front of me. And I'm like, wait up, wait up. Like, but it was much more mature and, and um, strong sounding. Like, wait up, please. Um, and so I'm running and I fall. And as I fall, I can feel those dogs getting closer. And the next thing I remember, I remember looking back at those dogs. And you know, you know how your memories aren't always exactly right. I remember, I, it was like I could... I could I could smell their breasts. I could feel the heat from them getting there. And the next thing I heard was the craziest sound I've ever heard in my life. When my brother started running, screaming and yelling, waving his arms wildly straight at those dogs. The dogs yelped a little bit, turned around and ran away. And I never from that day forward ever questioned what he would do for me. Okay. Now, here's the thing. We're family. This church, the body of Christ, church with a big C worldwide, but also church with a little C here, First Baptist Goodlesville, we're family. And yes, there are going to be squabbles internally. There are going to be disagreements that happen every now and then. But let me tell you something. If we're not, when people from the world, when the enemy tries to attack, if we're not standing firm with one another on guard, ready to defend to the death the people that are a part of this family, then we're not doing what Scripture tells us to do. And the moment we let any differences inside of here damage our witness outside of this place, We have run away from what God intended. And that only happens when we let jealousy and anger and guilt and greed invade our hearts. Back to that one conflict you've got going on right now. I know you say, I got lots going on. The one I told you to think about. What do you need to do this week? How do you need to handle that situation this week? What's the step you need to take this week to begin to live according to the wisdom from above, not the wisdom from below? And will you be faithful to do what you're called to do?
Let's pray together.